0: This episode of the Artsy Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Artists, photographers, and designers of all kinds have used Squarespace to showcase their works, and you can do it too. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch your site and show your work to the world, use the offer code artsy to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's offer code artsy, A-R-T-S-Y. Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan. Joined this week by Deputy Editor Scott Indrasek. Hello, Isaac. Hey, Scott. And a very special guest, co-curator of the New Museum Triennial, Gary Carrion-Mariari. Hi, guys. The fourth New Museum Triennial, Songs for Sabotage, is on view right now at the New Museum. It just opened last weekend. Go check it out if you live in New York City. If you don't live in New York City... Come to New York City and then go check it out. Um, but we're going to talk about this show, the process of curating it and the artists involved uh, with Gary. But we should also say that the the exhibition was curated along with Alex Gartenfeld of the ICA Miami. And there was help from Francesca Altamura, who is the assistant on the project. So, Gary, for for those listeners who uh, haven't seen the show yet and who maybe can't just hop on a plane and come right now. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how you conceived of of this triennial and how it differs from previous editions?
1: So this is the fourth edition of the triennial, as you mentioned. mentioned. And, you know, the only sort of parameters for the triennial are that it's um, a show of emerging artists, whatever, however you want to define that, and that it's international. And again, however you want to define that. So um, each edition has had different curators and they've approached it from different ways, whether, I mean, the first one was kind of, really looking at generation as a function of age, essentially. So there was a very sort of firm age cutoff. You know, the second one was looking at more sort of formative cultural events, especially it was curated after the Arab Spring. So a lot of artists were, was looking at artists who have kind of grown up within a culture of protest. And then the last one was looking at, you know, the kind of role that technology, the internet, social media has had on kind of how artists approach identity in a lot of different formats today. So for us, you know, there isn't necessarily a long history for us to, like, respond to in terms of what the show is. Um, you know, it's, I think it's different for those people who've done the Venice Biennale or um, when I curated the Whitney Biennial. That's an exhibition with a long history, and you can kind of, like, you know, there's certain things you know what the show, how the show functions. And so for Alex and I, um, you know, it was a kind of wide open slate. And starting at the beginning, it was important for us to emphasize the international aspect of the show. Partially because I think that's a great opportunity that it provides for, you know, us as characters is to really explore places that we wouldn't necessarily have had time or resources to do, you know, in our kind of daily lives as curators. But also as the, you know, the last three years have gone on, it's I think the the importance of bringing those international voices here to the U.S. and to New York in particular felt, you know, kind of more urgent. So, you know, that's really the only place we started with. Um, you know, I think I think for a lot of people who see the show, you'll see a lot of names that are unfamiliar and that's also I think a slightly new thing for, at least for people in the art world, I think there is an expectation that the Triennial thus far has kind of either highlighted or elevated artists to kind of a level of prominence that maybe they were pretty close to anyway. And I think for us, it was important for us to find things that we didn't know and really kind of take this as an opportunity to, to research and somehow in more depth than we, than I think the traditional rhythms of the art world allow you to.
2: I think that was one definitely before the show opened once the uh, artist list was released. It was feedback I got from a lot of people saying, oh, I don't recognize actually they were excited to say, I, I don't, or I don't recognize many of the names on this list. They'll be all new to me. So was that very intentional? That maybe even the majority of artists would be unfamiliar to to most people.
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, not just you know for like sort of novelty or you know sort of exoticism sake, but um, you know when we were going to cities that we hadn't been to before, it's very easy to quickly identify who the artists who like the biggest star in that city is. And, you know whether they have like they're the ones who are getting the museum shows or they're the ones who. You know, or maybe are selling the most, and I think you know those like kind of networks within the art world are easy to kind of like pull from. And for us, as much as possible, we were trying to be driven by the conversations we were having, you know, with colleagues and peers, you know, who are curators, um, but also with artists that we would meet there. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, we were looking more at, let's say, artists run spaces and alternative spaces and places we went to rather than commercial galleries. Although some of these artists have worked with commercial galleries, because I think, you know, I mean, there's, there's only so much you can do in, in a short research trip, but you, we wanted to kind of, reflect what we felt, the discussions and the urgencies of what those artists and what those artists communities were dealing with, um, you know, as much as we could. So I think that led us to maybe some names that would have been surprising, I think, even for people who are in those cities.
2: Were were a lot of those artists then, before you started doing this research, were they also perhaps like unfamiliar to yourself as well?
1: Oh, no, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the artists... Let's say, you know, the American artists we did know um, for the most part. But outside of that, I don't think there's a single artist that we knew before we started this process.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about the process of putting together this exhibition of discovering these artists? Because it's such an international set. And like you said, you didn't even know some of them. So I'm really curious about how you went about this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was a, it was a very... Um, kind of daunting process. And I think, you know, it it took at least a few months of me and Alex talking about like how we wanted to begin approaching it. Like, you know, where do we want to travel to? On the one hand, you have the entire world, but also you don't have the time and the money to really go to everywhere you could possibly imagine. So I think we did, you know, prioritize certain locations over others. You know, we didn't go to Zimbabwe, but we came across that artist's work. We were able to see it in person in LA. And, you know, so I think it was different for every artist, but we did outline a certain number of cities that we wanted to go to. And that probably, you know, probably two years out is when we actually started the traveling for the show. You know, Alex at the ICA has a very full program, and they opened a new building recently. And I was curating other exhibitions at the museum at the time. So you kind of have to try to find a way to do this while you're doing the rest of your job, essentially. So we would try to do some trips together, and then some places we kind of split up. Um, And so we, and then we would come, come back and Share research, but you know, part of the role of working within the new museum and working within the institution is that we, you know, we have somebody like Francesca, who's our assistant, you know, compiling all of this data that we're bringing back, Um, and it's you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's like data management is a big, a big part of it. Before we go to a city, we're, you know, identifying the institutions, the artists different spaces, the galleries, pulling names, requesting materials. So then when we go to a city, you know, you don't have more than a few days in a lot of places, although in you know, some places we had multiple trips, but, you know, you're trying to squeeze in as many visits as you can. So you have to kind of make some decisions before you get there. And then at the same time, be responsive to what you're seeing and like recommendations you're getting once you're on site. So there is a kind of overarching, you know, structure to kind of like handling all the material, but a lot of it also comes through conversations with individual people, you know, people recommending artists to us, things we were seeing once we were on the ground in the city. It, it's both very structured and also very improvised at the same time.
2: Maybe we can talk a little bit about the the title of the show and just when you were laying out the different informing conceits from the previous editions of the triennial, whether that was age or kind of like a political moment. Uh, I think the way you set it out in your essay for the show is in a very broad sense that all the work is kind of, I'm going to mangle you the way you very eloquently said it, but that it's kind of pushing back in like a lyrical or poetic way against um, kind of just the global system of capitalism, which is a pretty broad umbrella. But it also seemed, what I was really fascinated by in your essay and also Alex's was the way in, that you're both very aware that you know art is also part of its own market and its own system and how you know this disjunction between pushing back against capitalism and also being part of it at the same time.
1: Yeah. Well, I think part of the reason why we settled on sort of sabotage as a way, and I think like Evan's um, text, Evan calder Williams's text in the catalog, I think lays this out very nicely, is that we're dealing with artists that have a, like a varying degree, you know, diverse sort of models of political engagement, but I think all of them have an understanding that there is no existence outside of the system that we're a part of. So, you know, I mean, as much as they're dealing with local concerns, like it's about talking about the way that these local situations tie into larger networks of power of, of economics, of politics. So any kind of gesture that happens within it is still part of the system that we're a part of. So I think, you know, for us to like, try to claim a politics that's outside of capitalism would have been kind of disingenuous in a lot of ways. But I think there's still value in knowing that you're part of that system and trying to at least change the discussion or change the narratives that, you know, the system can talk about, even if it's for a brief moment. So I think that's sort of what what Evan talks about, you know, these kind of um, sabotage is an irrational activity that isn't necessarily going to completely upend the system, but it does slow things down it slows notions of efficiency of production value down for a brief period of time and i think that's kind of what these artists are getting at all of them know how the art world functions although they are in very diverse places it functions very similar to the way it does in new york these artists are producing products that are going to enter the market and are going to circulate and sell and i think that's you know part of what makes these artists special is that you know knowing that you know using this language that has this function within the system to talk about as a kind of propaganda for things that are not necessarily on the same plane of, of how that system usually functions.
2: I, I think for anyone listening who's hasn't seen the show yet, everything we're saying so far makes the show sound like intensely, like all the art is very politically engaged, which I guess is, is the case. I guess it depends on how you define politically engaged. And I mean, would you say that's the case, that this is like a very-
1: po- Yeah, 100%. But I think also part of what we wanted to do is, you know, I think there's an expectation when you want to make a show about what politics is today, that it's going to be- Entirely conceptual and dematerialized. We have no opposition to that. But I think when you talk to artists from other places and they talk about, you know, how do you communicate a message through your work? Oftentimes it is through, you know, very traditional media. And I think through very compelling use of images, I think, you know, images are essential for how you can possibly think about a kind of resistance to to these forces. So um, that's, I think, was the exciting thing for us was to see artists dealing with very difficult subjects, but doing it with a you know a sophistication and a, like I think a there's a certain amount of seduction that these artists deploy in talking about very difficult kind of emotions and concepts. You sort of mentioned that a lot of these artists are responding to
0: situations that are specific to that region or within a political context of a specific place. How did you sort of think about in the wall text, which I, I thought were generally very informative? How did you how are you thinking? like, okay, we need to make sure someone has a grasp on the history of the Philippines, but we obviously can't explain the whole thing, but we still
1: think the work will register on some level. Can you you talk a little bit about how you wanted to present these very international pieces? It varies from work to work. There's only a certain amount that you can convey in a wall text, and the research and the depth of, you know, you're talking about Sian in particular, like, it goes much beyond even that I will know. Um, But I think that's also okay. I think, you know, part of what we what we found was that there are very specific local stories that these artists, artists are dealing with, but oftentimes they're talking about, they're using the sort of same critical language to talk about it. So, you know, something like, um, we had obviously multiple artists dealing with the issue of monuments, and that's, you know, um, whether it's, you know, Harun, you know, making a proposal for the monuments to the victims of this police massacre, um, or even um, uh, Chemu, the a uh, painter from Kenya who's living in South Africa, who's, you know, her work, you know, comes in the wake of protests against the monuments to Cecil Rhodes, um, or Daniela Perez, who's looking at monuments to Columbus in in um, Spain and Peru and New York City. Like, they're very locally specific subjects, but the dialogue between those artists is very similar, and they can enter into a discussion about that subject very easily, and it's also obviously something that an audience here in the U.S. can understand. So I think, you know, you try to give... You know, as much of the specifics of that context as possible, but I think the power of those works is the way that they speak across um, to a more kind of universal um,
2: situation that we're all living with. It's funny because uh, Isaac and I were talking about this earlier, and like the, maybe the the one artist that we found was the most like complicated or fraught in this in the, in the sense of how much context you need to appreciate the work was um, Anna Anna Pemroy. Um yeah, yeah. because you know this for everyone who hasn't seen the show, this is sort of a room-sized. I guess it's all one installation of banners and. You know, paintings, drawings, images that were all done kind of as activist material for a, a communist party in, in India.
1: I think that's a, a good example to bring up because I think not all of that work was made specifically, you know, not all of those are protest banners, although... And that's part of what, you know, he tried to accomplish with this because, you know, yes, he's working in a very specific context and yes, he has like a very strong activist practice. But even in the kinds of imagery he's using, you know, he's responding to the kind of, you know, ethnic and caste based violence that happens in India quite often. And the student protests that happen there have been, you know, in the last few years have been very much bonding to the government's role in that. But he's also responding to, you know, issues of government complicity and violence against its citizens more broadly, globally, historically. So, you know, I think you can tell from the figurative images that he's using, he's looking at people like Goya or people like Bacon, like the horrors of violence, you know, state violence against its citizens is, is somehow a larger concern. So I think even if you don't know that, you know, this particular banner was made in response to this particular incidence in Delhi or in Bengal, he's okay with that as well. Because I think that horror is something that I think he truly believes is connected to Something that somebody else could experience in another country. I went down a bit of an internet rabbit hole,
0: uh, inspired by Harun Gonzalez's work. It shows a number of kneeling, headless figures, uh, who are these miners that were massacred in South Africa while protesting for for a higher pay rise. You know, some some something like from five hundred dollars to fifteen hundred dollars a month. You know, something something like that. And it was interesting to me because I had a, a visceral emotional reaction to the work because it's extremely powerful. You immediately think, I mean, Scott, you mentioned, it conjures like the kneeling figures that have become so prevalent today in, in American society. But even as I kind of research this, it's interesting because you sort of see these globalized connections. The The company that owned this mine actually is British. And of course, in the United States, we have any number of mining disasters that have been caused by sort of negligence, not not sort of the same labor strife in recent years. But but there are these kind of dots that were really fun to connect. They didn't connect them in the gallery, because I wasn't on Wikipedia then. But it was a nice example of how these kind of works sort of sit with you. Yeah, I
1: think that's a good point to bring up, because I think Harun especially is very cognizant of those connections, whether they're like, dissociative connections between the kneeling figures and the kneeling figures, you know, we're accustomed to here in the United States. You know, also, he did another piece where he looked at um, the use of Uh, the way police and military spray dye on protesters um, to mark them. And it's different colors are used in different countries, but it's a global phenomenon. And that's something that's, you know, very interesting to him. But I think you also bring up a wider point that, you know, again, that these are local concerns and they're tied to larger networks, but they're also, these are, you know, also very old problems that artists are responding to. So I think that's why the language of decolonialization is something that a lot of the artists in the show speak of, you know, these relationships between, you know, governments and, corporate interests and the way that they treat individuals are the continuation of, of systems of power that have existed for centuries. So I think that, you know, with Sion's work, you see him looking at the colonial history of the Philippines, you know, and people don't always think of, you know, the fact that the Philippines was a Spanish colony um, with Daniela's work, which I think, you know, um, the ceramics about the monuments to Columbus, I, I feel very, very strongly about that work, you know, and that work was prompted by, you know, her experience as a Peruvian living in Spain and seeing monuments, to explorers who are standing over the dead bodies of indigenous people from Latin America. And so these are monuments that are like icons of of Spanish cities. But if you are from, you know, that other region, you can see the way that that system of exploitation continues today. And so, you know, I think that was what was interesting for us to see was that, you know, again, there's an expectation that the triennial is going to talk about whatever is new and whether that, whatever that means, like whether it's, you know, um, in terms of technology, in terms of media, in terms of new discussions. But I think for us, these are artists dealing with the present in a very important way. But they have to look to the past to try to to understand. Because this is, you know, all of these situations, they're not new. They really are very, very old. And I think that's, you know, a lot of what we've learned from these artists in the show is to look for that history and to look
2: for those connections. You think uh, through this whole process of preparing for the show, because you guys started, I think, back in 2015, technically, as far as conceiving of things. Mm-hmm. I would imagine given the amount of legwork you put in that there's a lot of artists that didn't make it into the show, but that maybe is how this process works. You know, you, you kind of now have this bank of people you maybe would show up at the new museum in four years or at ICA Miami in next year.
1: Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. Um, you know, we, we made the decision to have a smaller number of artists. And I think, you know specifically so we could commission projects like Haroon's, which, you know, needs a substantial amount of space to show multiple works by artists and really for them to feel like they have a presence in the show that is going to be visible and, and talked about. But it did mean, you know, not including a lot of really incredible artists that we met. And so it is, you know, it is an amazing resource that we have now, um, you know, not just in terms of like having this sort of like material to like use, but the relationships that you build through this are, are very important. With individual artists, with, you know, curators and and other people that, you know, I didn't necessarily have a dialogue with beforehand. That's always a a great side effect of a show like this, as it does, you know, expand the kinds of dialogue we can have internationally. And I think that's always been something that, you know, you try to do as much as we can at the new museum. But, you know, again, it's, you know, you get into the cycle of exhibition after exhibition after exhibition without necessarily having the time to do the kind of research we did.
0: Yeah. And I know there was almost no, I don't think, any specific reference to kind of the current political moment in the United States and Donald Trump and any of that, but I did actually really appreciate that in some ways because I think if there's anything that America's current political chaos has caused, it's a it's a deep introspection that's really completely erased the political and news events of the outside world, like also digging into to South Africa. Learning all about what's going on with the ANC there, and, and yeah, this massive Zimbabwe, political ship. Like, there's, Zimbab- you know, I mean, there's so much yeah. stuff um, yeah. that it, it was. It was kind of a a good jolt that I think most people, especially Americans, right now, need to be like, oh yeah, there's a world outside of our borders, um, and often we've actually caused a lot of problems there that we're now <laughs> like
1: forgetting about. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, there wasn't a deliberate decision by us to like, not have like anti-Trump art, because I think all of the artists in the show would say that they're anti-Trump. And <laughs> what's interesting for us is to bring in artists who are respond. you know, like the increasing acceptance of racist rhetoric in this country feels somehow new and different. Uh, you know, the like general rightward swing in politics feels like something new and different. But you know, if you're coming from a country like Brazil or if you're coming from South Africa or if you're coming even from Greece, like, you know, this has been happening for quite some time now. So I think, you know, it's useful, not that like artists from the US have to like learn from these artists by any means, but I think, you know, I think it is a shared condition that we don't often think about that, you know, yes, you know, this is happening here. Yes, we've caused this in other places, but I think there is some value to having these different, Voices from different places talk together about how we respond to these things. So that was definitely in our mind um, throughout, you know, the selection process and putting the show together.
2: Would you say it's ultimately for you, like a like a hopeful exhibition? Would you are you hoping someone leaves the new museum kind of energized, or or is it more a little bit of a? I mean, the world is pretty bleak, so if it's reflecting the world,
1: but I think it, I think it is very hopeful because it should be the norm that these things are talked about, and I think these artists are not trying to like. I think they're working against that kind of isolation that I think the current moment can kind of provoke, whether it's like national isolation or individual isolation. Like, you know, the reason we pick things that are sort of lyrical or poignant in that way is that there is a sense that these objects can sort of build a community through this discussion. And I think that's, you know, hopefully what comes through in a lot of ways.
0: All right. Well, the New Museum Triennial Songs for Sabotage runs till May 27th. If you're in New York, come see it. If you're not in New York and you've gotten to the end of this podcast and you're itching for more, Uh, Head to the New Museum website and also check out Scott's review of the show on Artsy. All right. We'll be back in just a minute with White Wine. But first, a message from our sponsor. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that has allowed artists, designers, and photographers of all kinds to create websites showcasing their work. We spoke with one of them, artist Maude White.
3: I am a paper cutting artist and storyteller, and I live in Hudson, New York in the Hudson Valley.
0: We asked Maude to tell us about her process, including how long it takes her to create one of her incredibly intricate paper cut works.
3: Oh gosh, some pieces take weeks. For one thing, the beginning vision I have is never what it ends out to be in the end because it's cut paper, there's no erasing, and so it's always this really exciting, magical reveal at the end. I like working from old, black and white photos because what I do is so positive and negative and that just makes it so much clearer. So I sketch it out, a rough guide, and then I have my knife and I use rubber thimbles on my fingers so my fingers don't go numb because I do cut a lot.
0: You can see the results yourself on Maud's website, bravebirdpaperart.com, which she designed using Squarespace.
3: I really love Squarespace. The templates are so beautiful, and especially the one I'm using. It's really clear-cut. It fits with what I'm doing so well since I work in black and white. I've had really fun, great conversations with the support staff there who've been like, oh, man, I'm looking at your website. This is so awesome, like, while helping me. So it's just a really welcoming, helpful place. I'll say that.
0: Make your work stand out with a beautiful website from Squarespace. Use the offer code artsy to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's offer code artsy, A-R-T-S-Y. And now, back to our show. All right, so Scott, let's start with you. Uh, what are you going to be checking out this week?
2: Uh, well, I'm, I've already checked out, but might visit again, a show by uh, painter Tessa Perutz, which is at Pablo's birthday in the Lower East Side. Uh, she's curated a show upstairs called Karma Lair," which is, is kind of really, I want to say psychedelic landscapes, so that sounds really lame, but uh, my brain is a little fried right now, so we're going to go with psychedelic landscapes. And then downstairs, <laughs> she's curated a, a group show of works that are kind of in dialogue with her own upstairs. Uh, it's really terrific.
1: And what about you, Gary? Well, I haven't seen very much because it's been a little busy the last couple of weeks, but hopefully in the next couple <laughs> During, of weeks... Doing what? Oh, yeah, not much, just uh, hanging around. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to try to go down to D.C. to see the um, Outsiders and American Vanguard Art show at the National Gallery. Um, it's you know, I think a lot of people have been talking about it, and you know that subject is something that we've dealt with quite a bit at the new museum and also um the curator Lynn cook um curated a beautiful show with rosemary Truckle that oft, often brought a lot of those figures into dialogue with with rosemary's work so yeah it's a it's definitely something that i'm pretty sure i'm going to love but um i'm very excited <laughs> to go down and and check that out
0: i've been to dc twice really recently i haven't been to see that show but i really i really need to go check it out my my white wine is a little bit of a, a cheating one i'm i'm going to say that Something I saw recently, I was lucky enough to be at the uh, Presidential Portrait unveiling. Two two really special works of art. I know there's some kind of, there's a whole hot take economy out there that's produced like a really diverse array of opinions on them. But uh, I, I think uh, especially Amy Sherald's painting is is unbelievable. And if you're in D.C., you should also check that out, Gary, if you haven't seen I absolutely seen will. It. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, uh, Scott and Gary, for being here today. It's great speaking to both of you. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, podcast at artsy.net. See you next time. Our producer this week, as always, Associate Editor Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free. Other music is by Jazar.